Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's bow our heads as I pray. God in heaven, we ask you to, to show us the hope of the gospel. Lord, for those who listen today, who have come this morning, drawn perhaps by your, your direct work of your Spirit, coming maybe through the invitation of a friend or family member, Lord, I pray that, that those who listen today would hear the good news of Jesus. That for those who have not yet repented, they would see their need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Lord, for those of us that are followers of Christ, Lord, give us a love for our neighbors. Let us rejoice in the hope of the gospel that we who are lost have been found. And so we come thanking you for the grace that is ours in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not hard to imagine a party that you'd just rather not attend. You know, you get the invitation, one of your kids, you've got to go to this party and requires a parent to be there. And they call it pizza but that's definitely not pizza. It's not really consumable. Or, or maybe you get an invitation to a family wedding and you think, ugh, I'm going to have to go to this. I mean, if you were a betting person, you'd lay money that their car lease is going to last longer than the marriage. Like, who wants to celebrate this nonsense? I mean, it's not hard to imagine a party you don't really want to attend. Well, here in Luke 15... Jesus is describing the party that results from the salvation of sinners. And he turns to confront those who, well, they just don't think this is the right time for a party. Because look, look at the, the way this chapter begins. I know we've jumped right here into the middle of, of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be doing this throughout the spring, kind of jumping into to passages in each of the Gospels. But, but look at how the passage begins, the introduction that Luke gives us in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now that should come with some excitement for, for those of us that have been following the message of Jesus, that people are coming to hear him. They're crowding to hear the message. They want to know what is happening. What is this good news? Who is this teacher? And then look at verse 2. But the Pharisees 
And the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're disgusted at what they see. Doesn't Jesus know who these people are? Tax collectors, those rebels who have turned against us in joining with the evil forces of the Roman governor, the Roman king, the Roman legions. These sinners, we haven't seen them in church, well, ever. See, they don't deserve the welcome. That's what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, those that understand the commands of God, they, they say, this isn't the kind of party that Jesus should be at. What, what kind of party should he be? Well, go back, go back a chapter. Look at chapter, the beginning of chapter 14. When Jesus is invited to the, into the house of a prominent Pharisee, that's the kind of party Jesus should attend. A party for religiously good people, people who have it all together. And now you'll notice, though, that when Jesus shows up there, he confronts them. He tells them what the great feast of God will really look like, what the, the party of God will look like when he invites people from everywhere. And so Jesus, knowing the, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are muttering against his love for sinners, he tells them a parable. And he, in these parables, and there are three in this chapter, they're all connected by this theme of someone who has lost something important, a sheep, a coin, a son. In these parables, we see that salvation demands a party. I mean, notice, when the shepherd loses his sheep, Jesus says, of course he will leave the 99 behind and seek after the one that is lost. And, and, and look at the, the words that Jesus uses to describe the finding of the sheep. Look at verse 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Verse 6, he calls his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus gives the message of the parable, lest we would think it's only about agriculture and finding lost sheep. Look at verse 7. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who do not need to repent. Joyfully, calls people to rejoice. He says there will be rejoicing in heaven. This is the time for a party. The shepherd gathers everyone together. The same words are used again in the second parable when he tells the story of a woman who has lost 10 coins, searches until she finds the one that is lost. And in, in verse 9, she does the same thing, calls friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. In verse 10, Jesus repeats the lesson, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Salvation demands celebration. We should rejoice that God has taken a sinner, somebody who is at enmity with him, somebody who hated him, somebody who is lost in darkness, brought them into the light, somebody who is lost, who has now been found. This is a reason for a party. The shepherd calls together all his neighbors to rejoice. The woman calls together her friends and family for a party. And it's after the diligence of the search, the shepherd left behind the 99 to find the one that was lost. The woman, we're told, she, she carefully searches, she lights the lamp, she sweeps the house, she, she pours over every, every little, little crack in the dirt floor until she finds the coin that was lost. 
Because Jesus is saying he is the one who brings good news. News worth celebrating. The one who has been lost is now found. And he tells us that that the rejoicing is because there is a sinner who repents. Now, repentance is a theme that would have been, been understood by the people gathered with Jesus, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. It's an Old Testament kind of phrase, a biblical word. To repent means to turn around. It's, it's to make a, a U-turn in your life. You were going one direction, chasing after your own desires, and you repent, you turn and follow after God. One who was lost on the way that leads to death and destruction turns from that to follow after God on the path that leads to everlasting life. Jesus calls sinners to repent. And do you see how Jesus is already addressing both of the groups that are gathered in this crowd? Remember, there are tax collectors and sinners gathered to hear him speak. He's offering them, encouraging, exhorting them to repent. Graciously, he's he's saying, turn from the way of sin and turn back to God. But Jesus, while offering words of comfort to the, to the sinners is confronting those that don't think they're sinners. He even, he even says it there in verse 7, that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see what he's doing? He's beginning to set up these religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, those who think well, I am righteous, I am in good standing with God without any need for repentance. Now, by the end of the chapter, it should be clear who are those that are righteous without need of repentance. It is no one that's standing in front of Jesus. And maybe for you, that's, that's part of the struggle you have with, with, with accepting Christianity, is you've just known too many Christians who weren't really the most likable of people who seem like they're better than you, or at least they want you to think they're better than you, this problem of of hypocrites within the church. Now, to be honest, that's true. I mean, and I don't even need to blame any of you. Just spend a little bit of time with me, and you'll see hypocrisy in the church. Somebody who claims one thing but doesn't always live up to it. But do you see what Jesus is saying? The, The solution to hypocrisy is not to double down in yourself and to think, well, let me pull it together. Let me get myself right. What is Jesus doing in this passage? He's confronting hypocrites. He's confronting the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And so, so if, you're, if, you're, if your reason for not, not trusting in Jesus is because you know hypocrites that are in the church, well, the solution isn't, isn't to double down in your own, in, in your own self-goodness. And what is Jesus saying? Repent of hypocrisy. Repent of your self-righteousness. Turn and find your hope in Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. He's confronting hypocrisy because hypocrisy is not only a Christian problem. It's a human problem. Every one of us knows that within us lingers pride. Every one of us knows that we don't live up to our own expectations, and so what is the solution? Well, Jesus is offering it to us. It's the solution of repentance. Jesus is confronting Religious hypocrisy, Jesus is exposing each of our hearts. On a youth group retreat as a high school student, 
I remember a, a, a challenging message. We were gathered in the, the chapel of a, of a camp. Now, some of you have, have been at this camp, even with me, when I was youth pastor up, a, up to Streamside. We're, we're there in the chapel in our, you know, in our rows of, of plastic chairs. And I remember at the end of the message, and it was a, you know, a, a rousing message, there was a call to respond. The response was, if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, then come forward now and pray to accept Jesus. If you are a Christian and you, you've put your trust in Jesus, then respond now by taking a step of faith, committing your life to him. Come now to pray with one of our youth leaders who are here. And I remember sitting there, watching my friends stand and go to the front, looking around at what was happening, sort of crossing my arms and thinking, this is nonsense. Until there were only two of us left seated. Me and the kid whose parents made him come, and I'm pretty sure he had a criminal record. So it's him and me. The leader in youth group, the kid who is going to college to become a pastor, sitting there with my arms folded, at least he was being honest. He wanted nothing to do with God. He wasn't going to play along. And yet here I am looking at everyone else and saying, you know what, they've just been caught up in the music, in the emotion. I don't think any of this is real. I'm completely ignoring the fact that God might actually be doing something in people's hearts. I'm ignoring the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ saves sinners. I'm sitting there with my arms folded saying, I'm the only one who has this figured out. Would Jesus really welcome sinners like them? See, when Jesus tells us to repent, his challenge exposes my own sin, my own self-reliance. He, he puts me in the place of the Pharisees, the one who think, well, sit back, fold your arms, and just laugh at others who might come to Jesus. To get angry at God's grace being extended to people who you think they just don't deserve it. But when we see repentance, what should our reaction be? Not the cross-armed callousness of a teenage Kevin, but a party. When you see a sinner respond to the gospel, what are you meant to do? Shout it out to your friends and neighbors. Come celebrate with me. One who was lost has been found. A sinner has repented. Grace has been extended to someone who did not deserve it, someone like me. So when we see the gospel extended to others, it should remind us, well, that's exactly how the gospel came to me, as one who was undeserving. And perhaps we've lost some of that sense of excitement of salvation. Maybe because you've presumed upon your own. Maybe because you go through the motions, you, you drag your kids out the door, you get here, you are almost on time, but you got here. You're just, you're just plowing through. Maybe we've lost some of the sense of, that, that when we sing of the gospel, this is a party to be celebrated. There is good news to be extended. And so, I'm going to just, just challenge you. Come a little bit early next week, all right? And sit with someone you don't know. Go up and introduce Now, okay, if you're, if you're new to Faith Church and you're realizing, uh-oh, the pastor's just about to send people to come talk to me. Okay. Well, we want, we want to create an environment where faith is welcoming, 
if you have, if, if you're new and you really don't want to be pestered, then just say, hi, my name is, and then you can move on, all right? We want to welcome you as, as much as you're ready to be welcomed, but, but, but think of it this way. I, the reason I'm telling you to come early is if, if you are a first-time visitor to a church, if you have to figure out, well, where do I park? Where do I put my kids in the nursery? You're going to probably show up a little bit early, which means you walk into a room where there's a worship team that's busy because they're going through final sound checks. And so when you sit, you sit alone. So come early and sit with somebody. Introduce yourself. It's easy. You put out your hand and you say, hi, my name is, and then you just have to remember your name. Now you might think, well, okay, but that's easy for you because you know everybody, Kevin. I mean, what if I walk up to somebody, you might be thinking, what if I walk up to somebody and they say, um, yeah, we've met before. Like, we've gone to the same church now for 11 years. And you don't want to be embarrassed. Well, then simply respond by saying thank you for exposing the selfishness in me. Take that step. Be willing to risk embarrassment for the sake of the gospel. Be willing to say, you know what? I should have greeted you 11 years ago then. I should have been greeting you every Sunday. Be willing for the sake of meeting someone new to be willing to apologize to somebody old. Be willing to say, you're helping me learn what it means to welcome others in the name of Jesus. See, and here's the thing. If you're both doing it, then you can kind of laugh about it, right? When you're both like, yeah, we probably should know each other's names by now. But that's okay. I don't know everybody's name. I mean, my parents, they still, most of the time, most of the time get my name right. But I often, you know, I'll answer to Michael or Stephen, either of my brother's names. I'll even answer to Kathy or Chrissy, my sister's names. Right? So just be willing to extend a hand. And maybe, maybe for you, if, to, to change your thinking about what church is when we gather in worship, that there's something to be celebrated here, then maybe you need to do what the, the shepherd or the, the woman has done. You need to call your friends and neighbors and let them know you have good news. Invite them to join you on a Sunday morning. See, if you're afraid to sit with someone new who you don't know, well, then I'll make it easy on you. Bring someone new that you already know, okay? You can get around my, you can get around my suggestion, right? You will already know them. You won't be embarrassed if you bring somebody that you work with, somebody who's on a sports team with you, somebody who sits next to you in school. Then you can, you can meet my expectation that you'll be greeting and sitting with somebody new, but you'll already know their name, so you won't have to embarrass yourself. Oh, but now you're thinking, well, but now the embarrassment, Kevin, you're asking me to do is not that I won't have remembered their name. The embarrassment might be that they're going to reject my offer, that they're going to think what I'm offering them is foolish. And I, and I do. I understand that that's harder to do, especially for a family member, a close friend, someone you've known for a long time. But you have good news. You have something worth celebrating. You have the joyous news that God is throwing a party in heaven when a sinner repents. All right, now, you might still think, okay, I'm still not ready to just kind of step out on my own and do this, and I, I want a more organized, I want a more structured kind of way. Well, then I'm going to give you one. Easter is coming up. Rick Gray, who serves as the campus minister 
with RUF International at the University of Delaware. Um, he, his name's at the back of our bulletin. We, we support him. He wants you to host an international student for Easter dinner. Now, I printed some more of these invitations. We'll have, we'll have details in, in the bulletin coming up with all of his contact info. But what he's doing is he's saying, we have thousands of international students right here in Delaware from all over the world who, for spring break, Easter break, will be stuck on campus because it's too far to travel home. And many of them are eager to accept an invitation to have a meal in an American home just from a cultural perspective. They just, they just want to know what goes on behind those doors they've never been invited to. And most college students, most international students, never receive an invitation. What Rick, is, what Rick is asking us to do as a church, churches here close enough to the university to welcome somebody is, is invite a student or two. He'll, he'll line it up. He'll do the inviting. See, if you're thinking it, it'd be too hard for me to invite someone, he'll, I have a paid professional who, is go, who will invite someone for you. All right? All you have to do is have a meal with them in your home. And here's the, here's the easy thing. Because it's on Easter they're going to ask you, what's Easter? And then, I think, those of you that are members here at the church, you're capable of making the connection to the good news of Jesus from Easter. And actually, even if you think, well, maybe I'm, I'm not sure, Rick will have printed available guides that you can walk through. See, but, but the good news we have is something worth celebrating. So invite someone. We'll make sure you get Rick's info, and they're, 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 these are out on the info table if you're ready to, you're ready to go. You can, you can email him today. He'll get you lined up. See, so we have good news that needs to be shared. Now, as Luke 15, as it builds, we go from a, a shepherd who has lost one of a hundred sheep to a woman who has lost one of ten coins to a father who loses one of two sons. And so as I continue reading, you're going you're to recognize this story. This is the story of the prodigal son. I mean, you know that phrase even if you've never opened a Bible. But look at the response of the father to his sons, to both of his sons. I'm going to continue reading from verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, 
threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, you already knew this story. But Jesus has gotten much more personal, much more emotional as he brings the story into a family. The prodigal who says to his father, give me my share of the estate, looking at his father as if to say, you are as good as dead to me. You are worth nothing to me except what I, can, what, what I can wring from your cold, dead hands. So just give it to me now. We're told that he squandered, in verse 13, squandered his wealth in wild living. That's why he is the prodigal, the lavish spender, the one who recklessly throws around his money. But when he's left with nothing, he's forced then to feed pigs. An embarrassing job for anyone, a disgraceful job for a Jewish son. One commentator says he sought pleasure, but he finds pain. He wished for freedom, but he gets bondage. The freedom that he was seeking has left him trapped. And maybe there's, there's a prodigal in your life, a son, a daughter, a grandchild for whom you've been praying, someone who, is, who should know better, somebody who has heard the gospel and yet seems lost. Well, let this be an encouragement to you, maybe directly to you, a prodigal wandering from God, living your own way by your own rules, flaunting your freedom, and yet you find it empty. There is hope for you here. Because what is the father's response to the prodigal? It's there in verse 20. While his son was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father, breaking all customs, a man of, of, of power and privilege in this town, if he can throw up 
party and has hired hands. A man who wouldn't be expected to run. What, what would we expect to have happen? He should stand angrily on his porch and wait for his son to come groveling up the drive. But before he even gets there, if his neighbors know anything, well, they should make sure this son knows what a terrible, rotten scumbag that he is. He's disgraced his father. He's brought dishonor on the whole town. You dare show your face here? But what does the father do? He's going to beat everyone to them. No one will get to my son before I welcome him home. The father will, will bear the, the shame of his son's actions by picking up his robes and running to meet his son. Filled with compassion, he runs. He throws his arms around him and kisses him. He puts his best robe on him, welcoming him back into the family symbolically. He, he kills a fattened calf. He decides, we have to throw a party, a fattened calf. It'll feed the whole town. Everyone will come to celebrate. Because my son was dead, but he's alive again. Again, we have a celebration for that which was lost, but has been found. But there are two brothers. The older son hears that there's a party and asks what's happening. He's told then in verse 27 by a servant, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. When I mean, you hear as Jesus tells this story, that is meant to be an invitation. So come on in, your brother is here. The lost has been found there is a reason to celebrate, but what is the brother's response? Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. How dare forgiveness be extended to him? We've heard the stories. I mean, he doesn't even need to know the, the, the full shame of it, that he's lost everything, that he was feeding pigs, that he's come back home. He just knows that, that there was enough disgrace, enough shame brought on his family that, that this prodigal brother of mine doesn't deserve forgiveness. And yet we see the father's love for both sons, because look at verse 28. When, this, when the older brother refuses to go in, his father went out to him. Just as he ran to meet the younger son, so he goes to, to welcome his older son, to bring him in to the celebration. The father's love extends even to the one who thinks he's already righteous. And you see what Jesus is doing here, right? He's preaching to both, again, to, to both parts of the crowd that are gathered, to the sinners, the prodigals, come home, he says. The father in heaven is throwing a party. He will welcome you. He will, he will rejoice in your return when you turn from sin and come home. But Jesus, in the, in the in the character of the older brother, is anticipating the response of the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, who will think, what, are you kidding me? This is the message? Go do whatever the bleep you'd like to do, and then you just come home? That can't be right. I've been here every day doing the right things. I've been slaving and toiling for the honor of my father. And he gets the fatted calf. 
he gets the party. I'm not even allowed to have a little shindig with my friends, and he gets a, a, a party for the whole neighborhood? This is nonsense. See, but that's the reaction that we had in, in, verse, in verse 2. The Pharisees, the, ta- the, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, muttering to themselves, are you kidding me? He welcomes sinners and tax collectors? But don't you see what Jesus is doing? He's forcing the older brother He's exposing the older brother's sin. He's forcing the older brother to admit that he is a sinner. That, that, that lurking deep within him is this pride which is so easily brought to the surface. As soon as someone else receives a gift, then his pride says, but what about me? Look at what I deserve. You see, Jesus is confronting the religious leaders. The gospel is not merely for the wayward, wandering son who repents. The gospel is for the the self-righteous, the religious son who thinks he's already done enough. Jesus is saying, no, you are both sinners. And Luke 15 only really begins to make full sense to us when we begin to understand who is sharing this story. Because everyone who hears this message is condemned as a sinner. All who hear Jesus speaking now, now some of them would be quick to accept that label because they would look at their life and say, it's kind of hard to argue against this, this, this littered mess of shame behind me. I'm a sinner. But what he does is to the self-righteous who have been sweeping the path all along to keep it clean, who say, no, no, look at my life. Looks pretty good. I mean, I even even trimmed the edges. Jesus is saying, you are a sinner. See, there's only one in this story who is righteous. It's not the younger son. It's not the older son. It's the storyteller. It's Jesus himself. I mean, part of the, the older brother's violent response is, we already gave him everything he deserved before he deserved it. You already cut the estate in half. You had to sell off property to give him enough cash to leave. If you kill a fattened calf now, that's my fattened calf. This is my half of your estate. This is what I deserve. See, the welcome of the younger brother, it does cost the older brother something, but don't you see what Jesus is doing for us? He's telling us good news, but as the the one who gives good news, he is saying, I am the one who is righteous. You can be welcomed into God's family when you repent because my righteousness will be given to you. I will take your sin and your shame because Jesus is the one who goes to the cross to pay the penalty for sins. That's why there's good news for us in Luke 15 because the gospel of Luke leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ where he takes the sin of prodigals where he takes the sin of the self-righteous religious people and then offers us a joyful welcome into God's kingdom when we come to him and repent. See, Jesus' words are words of comfort and grace. He treats those that have been despised with honor and dignity and love. He says, sinner, come home. See, in this story, they're really only lost sons. I mean, my Bible labels it the 
parable of the lost son. Maybe yours calls it the parable of the prodigal son. But both sons are lost. And actually, only one for sure is found, right? Because the chapter doesn't give us a nice, clean resolution. There's only one son in the party when the scene closes. The repentant son. The one who admitted his sins and found welcome and forgiveness. The father says to the older son, verse 31, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the chapter ends without answering the question, what about the older brother? Does he go inside? Does he join the party? Does he repent? It's because that's the question Jesus leaves lingering over us as a church. Do we consider ourselves already good enough? Do we as individuals think, you know what, I've got it pretty well together? Or do we see the work that he's doing in throwing a party for repentant sinners? Salvation has been offered to us. We have the joy of rejoicing in the salvation of others. Will you join the party? That's what Jesus is asking. Will you join his party? Let's pray. Father, your gospel offers us good news. And so I pray that you would give us the hope that comes from, from being forgiven, the joy of being welcomed by Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clear teaching of Jesus, the extravagant grace that is offered, an undeserved love and favor that becomes because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Lord, for those who sit now and struggle with whether or not they should come, Lord, I pray that they would find forgiveness through Jesus our Savior. Lord, let them now, even as the service concludes, pray asking for your forgiveness. Pray putting their trust in Jesus as Savior. And Lord, make us a church that is excited to share this good news. We have been given good news we have grace to share with others, and so we come, praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.